Welcome to Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 159 and it's 16th of May 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Pretty good, thank you. I have finally caught up with the Bad Batch, just a few weeks late, <laughs> because <laughs> um, I was basically being cheap and delaying getting a Disney Plus subscription for reasons. Um, but I now have my Disney Plus subscription, so I can properly follow the Bad Batch from this point on. And that's exciting, because we're going to talk about it more in a minute. But I'm really enjoying what I've seen so far. So yeah, it's very oh, nice. good. <laughs> I'm pleased that you're watching it. I was worried that I wouldn't be able to persuade you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, I felt really bad. It's like, oh, I don't want Kirsty oh, no. to feel left behind. <laughs> it's just like, you know, if we don't both watch or read something, it's hard to talk about. So, Of course, yeah, it would basically just be you like delivering a monologue about the virtues of the Bad Batch. And I'd be like, sounds cool. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get all preachy about it. <laughs> yeah, and I could definitely contribute more. Um, so yeah, this episode we're going to start off with a general chat about the first three episodes of The Bad Batch, and then we're going to segue into a discussion of the fandom surrounding Attack of the Clones in the early 2000s. And it so happens that we've chosen a serendipitous day to record, haven't we, Kirsty? Yeah, it's the 19th anniversary of its release today, which we were not aware of when we planned this episode, but let's pretend that we totally did that on purpose. Yeah, and another like piece of like cosmic symmetry, or whatever you'd call it, is, is the 19th year anniversary of Attack of the Clones, and Anakin is 19 years old in the film. Oh? Dun dun oh. dun! <laughs> at least i think he is someone's probably gonna correct me on that now but i'm happy is, to die he? on that hill sorry i think he is yeah. yeah i think he is no i think he is too so i remember like george lucas giving an interview or something about how like it's when they're 19 then they start their hero's journey you know and obviously 19 is when we pick up with anakin after a long break and he's actually a young man at that point so, yeah, should be fun, guys. I'm excited for it. No, I'm feeling good about it. Benifer are back together. My <laughs> husband just bought a flip phone. I am ready to go back to the early 2000s and celebrate Annie Darlow in all their glory. Oh, my goodness. Okay, but like, I mustn't get distracted by Benifer. Sorry. No. <laughs> Don't worry. It's, it's very amusing. It causes me much delight. Um, yeah, so would you like to briefly, like explain what the Bad Batch is about and how it fits into the timeline relative to the Clone Wars, Kirsty. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a sequel to the Clone Wars, which I I hadn't gone in fully expecting it to be that way. I, I hadn't really thought about it that much, to be honest. Um, but yeah, the Bad Batch, Clone Force 99, is that what they're called? I think so. <laughs> We're such Don't listen fans. to us if you expect us to nail all the details, guys. Apologies in advance. Yeah, basically the premise is that they're like clones with extra special skills, right? They've each been enhanced to have a specific ability that's heightened. Yeah, they reminded me a little bit of the Spice Girls in the sense yes, that each I got of them a boy band a feel. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so you have they like the nerdy different. one. You have like the sexy strong one. You have the evil one, you have the funny one, and then you have the fifth one who's like an, a second nerdy one, but there's probably more like differentiation that I'm missing <laughs> in terms of those two characters. 
Sure. <laughs> Hopefully Kirsty knows I vaguely what I'm talking about. I was thinking about it last night and I was like, this is kind of what I would hope for from like a Knights of Ren thing. Yes. Where they each have a distinct personality and aesthetic that you can quickly grasp and but they're a they're a crew. They're buddies. Yeah. Um yeah, it's it's fun. Exactly. It's like the whole little found family thing, isn't it? They formed like a little family and they're bound together by the fact they were a bit different from the rest. And yeah, there's some really fun scenes in the first episode that are basically them like in the cafeteria with like hundreds, if not thousands of other stormtroopers around them. And they're just like on their own little table because they're the oddballs and the other stormtroopers are picking on them. (laughs) Camino is a high school. Yes. Because it kind of is, because you really have all the cr- clones crammed into this one. They've obviously, a lot of them haven't been anywhere else yet. Like, they're, they're just the kiddo clones. Mm. And, yeah, it has that claustrophobic high school feel. Exactly, yeah. Um, it's very much like a Mean Girls vibe I was getting from it at times. Which, again, I appreciated. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. See, guys, what other Star Wars podcast compares The Bad Batch to Mean Girls? It's this one, <laughs> and that's why we're great. <laughs> so um but yeah so basically the plot such as it is is essentially about the bad batch coming into contact with this kid called omega um and she takes an instant liking to them mainly because she's different from everyone else like at the cloning facility and she like teams up with them whether they want to have her along for the ride or not essentially and the first three episodes have basically been about developing that story and basically showing the Bad Batch like being really concerned for her, wanting to look out for her and make sure she's protected, and her deciding to stick with them, even when they offer her an alternative of like fostering her out to another family, basically. And yeah, it's all very sweet and wholesome. Star Wars has like a real thing recently about like telling stories about like grown men looking after kids. But I don't mind. It's a quite a pleasant subgenre of Star Wars, and I feel it's been done pretty well so far, like between this and The Mandalorian. Yeah, so what did you yeah. think about the Omega stuff, Kirsty? I guess kind of from the beginning, Star Wars has been about fathers and their relationships with children, right? Yeah. In a sense. So they they just do kind of different riffs on that. Uh, like you, we've talked about this a lot, but I prefer stories about mothers and their children too. Yes. But <laughs> not one of Star Wars' strengths. <laughs> I really hope one day they're like all gathered together like in a story meeting and like what's one thing we haven't done yet in Star Wars and they're all just sat there thinking and then someone like tremulously raises a hand and it's like mother and child relationships and suddenly they're like oh <laughs> and then they do something because yeah something needs to happen. I think they must be aware because it always gets awkward around Mother's Day <laughs> when yeah. they're posting on social media yeah exactly they don't have like lots of great pictures to use do they for those media social posts it's a bit awkward um but yeah sorry got distracted uh, omega <laughs> yeah i love her i think she's great yeah um i was thinking you know you can't help but compare it to mando because as you say it's something quite similar that they've done at least in the initial premise recently but obviously the big difference is that she can talk to the bad batch Yes, and they can talk back to her and they can understand each other in a way that the audience can kind of grasp a bit more. Um, so it's kind of easier to hook you in that way. And yeah, she's kind of mysterious. 
like in terms of we don't quite know what's going on with her in terms of like the larger clone plot that they've got going on especially with like the the Kaminoans talking about what how they're going to have to adapt now that the empire is considering the clones redundant yeah um so i'm guessing things will kind of evolve that way but her mystery aside i think she's a really great character so far she's really sweet and I love how she just loves the Bad Batch and she wants to stay with them and she recognises something in them that she has and and that's her family. Yeah. It's really, it's really lovely. Yeah, no, I find her really endearing. Like, I think they've done a really good job at making her vulnerable. You know, so far there's been lots of scenarios where, like, she gets into, like, a difficult situation and the Bad Batch have to save her. But she's, like, always, like, strong and resilient throughout it all. You know, she's never just, like, an object to be saved. She does have, like, a real little personality that shines through it all that I really like. Um, Mm -hmm. And, yeah, like, just the idea of her, like, craving role models, you know, because she clearly feels like an outsider for pretty much her whole life. And then she sees this, like, little bunch of, like, eccentric outsiders and she's like, I like them. That's what I want to be. I I think that's really sweet and... Yeah, I think there's always something relatable in stories about outsiders because I think most people have felt like that at some point in their lives. Like, I don't fit in with the majority of people here. Yeah, and in terms of her, like, stepping outside of Kamino and experiencing other planets and environments, I can't get enough of that in Star Wars. Oh, you know, we yes. had a bit of it with Rey. Yeah, but, yeah. No, that yeah. first moment when um they, like land the ship and she comes out and she's like handling the dirt and she's just amazed it reminded me so strongly of um ray on takadana for the first time which Mm -hmm. i loved i I love that moment one of my best star wars moments yeah it's a real fairy tale thing isn't it you kind of associate that with princesses who've been kind of locked away in the tower yeah and they're finally free (laughs) exactly yeah and it's very endearing like it's a shame like it's not disappointing but it's still a shame that the internet only seems to be able to talk about Omega in terms of like what's her mysterious backstory because I feel like it like obviously there's I guess you could argue that there's like a mystery by omission because they haven't clarified she came from X you know but to me it's just not present in my mind all that much like and until it's proven to be like a different story I'm just like of the opinion that she's just another Django like offspring slash clones i know clone doesn't work because of the different gender but whatever well i don't know to be honest i mean it is a bit confusing the whole cloning thing they can kind of do with it whatever they want but yeah yeah same as you i'm just kind of kind of read her as the trans clone that i want her to be right now (laughs) nice yeah there's all sorts of theorizing about whether there's actually like a palpatine connection Mm. (sighs) but yeah it's a bit confusing because this kind of actually relates to a wider issue that obviously a lot of people have been discussing since that first episode, that there's an element of whitewashing going on. Mm, yeah. Um, and I'm really glad to see that um, some of the entertainment press has been picking it up. And James, at, is it James Whitbrook at io9 wrote a piece about it. Yes, I think so. Um, that Amiga looks paler than some of the other clones and the Bad Batch in general look paler than... The regular clones as well yeah um so yeah there's an element there of like is she being whitewashed or is she actually meant to be a clone of Django or someone else 
we just don't know for sure yet i guess yeah they've made lots of weird decisions unfortunately with the racial presentation of various the caleb thing is the most glaring oh yeah like in a literal sense i just couldn't I, i did not recognize who that character was meant to be yeah, no, that was just bizarre. Like, I haven't seen Rebels, but I've obviously seen lots of pictures of Kanan, you know, so I'm very familiar with that character's appearance. And yeah, I would never have made the link between those two characters unless I was explicitly told that they're the same person. So yeah, I think that's a bit shocking, really. I know there have been reports saying, like, oh, it's the lighting or something, but. I personally don't buy it and it's a bit of a shame really. It does scream carelessness like, and that's like in the best interpretation of that decision. <laughs> so yeah, it's just a shame. It does distract a bit from what is like a really interesting, dramatic introduction to that show. You know, it's a great like attention grabbing way to start it. But yeah, it's definitely an issue and hopefully it's something that can be fixed at some point because... You know, if they can go back to the Phantom Menace and completely replace like Yoda with a digital Yoda, they can go back and correct characters' to skin tones in an animation. I'm sorry, but it's not impossible. So, yeah. Yeah, there there are tweets from Pablo Hidalgo a while back saying that none of the ghost crew in Rebels, like the human characters of Sabine, Ezra, and Kanan, are white. So I don't understand what's going on there. Mm. Like, you know, we, have, we haven't read the Kanan comics. I know he's presented differently there too. And I was just wrapping up the last couple of seasons of Clone Wars kind of simultaneously with watching The Bad Batch as it was coming out this last week. And there was like a, you know, like the opening prologue where they kind of like do a summary of what's been going on. There was a glimpse of Depper and Caleb there, like on a hologram, I think. Yeah. Um, and he, he looked the same there. So like the, the design is consistent across the two series, but... I just don't understand how that is meant to be the same person as the Kanan that we know in Rebels. He just looks so different. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's very strange. Yeah, and and Saw as well. Like, that's that's maybe a little different because obviously they've had to evolve that character's design since Forrest Whitaker was cast for Rogue One. He looks different when we see him in Rebels too. So they've maybe had to kind of straddle his design in Clone Wars and Rebels. But at the end of the day, he, in in mine and plenty of other fans' opinions, he he looks too pale. Mm. Um, yeah, his skin seems a lot lighter, and he still has the green eyes, which is the original design as well. And it's just, I don't know, it's strange now we have like a real life actor associated with that role. Um, yeah, yeah, no, lots of weird decisions. I think it's safe to say. Um, and yeah, hopefully some action is taken going forward. Do we know if um, The Bad Batch is going to have more than one season? I don't know, actually. I think this season is meant to have around 16 episodes. Okay. Um, so it's quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so hopefully it's something that, I don't know, even if they don't go back to season one, I'd like them to fix it in season one. But if not, it's surely something they know it's a problem at this point. People have been very vocal about it. And I know Lucasfilm people have responded, like, even obliquely sometimes to that point. So, yeah, it's on the radar and hopefully something's done about it going forward. But yeah, like, overall, I really enjoyed the first three episodes. Like, I'm obviously not, like, the most 
devoted follower of Star Wars animation and I still have not seen the Clone Wars and watching this I was very aware of the fact I hadn't seen the Clone Wars I was still able to follow it perfectly fine because you know like it's a relatively simple story and the stuff they're referencing I can usually guess what had happened previously or I know about it by hearing other people talk about it in the fandom basically so I wasn't completely lost or anything but yeah I definitely think it's the sort of show where you'll get more out of it if you've seen the Clone Wars and yeah I've had several people send me lists now of episodes to focus on so yeah even if I don't have time to fit the whole thing in because there's obviously a lot of episodes hopefully I can at least watch select ones that will enhance my perspective on the on the Bad Batch a bit more hmm yeah I there are different lists you can follow depending on like which characters you would want to invest your time in in the Clone Wars because the thing is it's, it's spread out so much there's so many different places in the galaxy to focus on obviously the Bad Batch is going to be much more focused on these specific characters yeah um but yeah I my brain is like a bit of a mush right now because I did cram so much of the Clone Wars into the last couple of weeks <laughs> but I really enjoyed it and season seven especially was just so fantastic awesome like, the tension in those last four episodes as it kind of ramps up through the events of Order 66 is just incredible. And then to kind of get another iteration of Order 66 in this premiere was really, really interesting. Like, I I think Order 66 is a pretty fascinating event in terms of, like, seeing how the galaxy changes in an instant and you can experience it really differently depending on which characters you're kind of following with a specific story. So all works together really well. Yeah, no, I found that, like, the most interesting part of episode one, I think. Like, just seeing, you know, Order 66 happen from that very different perspective from what I'm familiar with in Revenge of the Sith. Um, Mm. And, yeah, it was interesting to me seeing, you know, like, most of the clones, aka not the Bad Batch, just be so, like, dispassionate about it, you know, and, like, just carrying out their orders, you know, and not feeling anything, or at least appearing to not feel anything. And I'm sure yeah. that's something that the rest of the Clone Wars like recontextualizes a lot. So I know you get to know several of the clones on quite a personal level. So yeah, those stories definitely intrigue me more now I've seen this. Yeah, it's it's a real tragedy because it basically wipes away their entire personalities. Um, and obviously you do get to know them through the Clone Wars. And there's an element of that in that last arc of the Clone Wars as well with Rex and Ahsoka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's, it's really well done there. Um, so some of the clones, you can actually see them struggling with it. Yeah, but obviously with a character like Crosshair, I, <laughs> I don't know. They're kind of being a bit more ambiguous there, aren't they? Because it's like he's part of the Bad Batch, and yet something didn't work or did work with him that didn't with the other characters there. And it's like that's going to be part of the tension of the season going forward. I think whether they'll be able to get him back or if he's kind of someone that they just have to leave behind now which is a real struggle for hunter obviously yeah no it's really interesting to like see what they're doing with the character of crosshair because i was honestly shocked in episode three by some of the stuff that they had him do you know like completely coldly ordering the massacre of those civilians you know for example it's like wow for like an animation that's you know like kid friendly obviously they want kids to watch it too like that's a very dark thing to show you know and i know st- stuff like that's been shown in stars before you know obviously the village on jakku you know that gets wiped out but 
yeah, it was just framed in a particularly horrifying way in that episode. And yeah, I do have lots of questions about what's possible for Crosshair now. And I think, as you say, it will depend a lot on the power of this like switch he seems to have inside of him. You know, the switch that means he obeyed Order 66. Mm. How much does that affect his free choice in the situation? And is there a way of turning that off the other way so that he's like a different person again you know so yeah it's interesting yeah i'm really interested to see how things go with the transition from the clone army to the recruits and especially with like you know a character like tarkin who must be aware of things like the inhibitor chip and the way that they can you know manipulate clones dna and genes and behavior in a way that obviously they wouldn't be able to do with regular people who just decided to sign up and kind of saw it more as a job um so there's going to be that kind of tension too um yeah it seems like a bit of a weird choice at the moment from like tarkin's perspective is like isn't this a pretty sweet deal or do the other clones just that expensive yeah they'll save all this money (laughs) (laughs) yeah which i do kind of like it's the empire yeah like tarkin does strike me as like quite like a like like by the book person you know probably constantly checking the accounts and like being like really anal retentive about like going over budget and stuff so yeah maybe the clones are just that pricey maybe it's really funny to see the Kaminoans kind of like panicking because they maybe thought that they had something really good going here and all of a sudden they're like oh well we need to get on this we need to figure out something new in the next phase of cloning and is that going to be related to the Palpatine and Snoke stuff too yeah we're gonna see Ray's dad oh no I think to get really like real world with it, they need to diversify their business model. Because <laughs> right now, I think their business model is literally just produce clones for the Republic slash now the Empire. And mm. yeah, that's not a good mood, guys. They really need to like look at other sources of revenue. So yeah, you can tell I have an adult job because I can talk like that. So. <laughs> Maybe we'll see Baby Yoda. <laughs> oh God, in a little tank. <laughs> next to luke's hand (laughs) sorry i know this is well before luke had his hand chopped off and yeah but oh my god my brain has just been melted from all that cloning stuff yeah i'm embracing myself going all in with the clone weirdness yes exactly so yeah i'm very curious to see where the season takes us I think going forward, we're probably going to hold off having like a really in-depth discussion about the show until the whole thing's wrapped up. But I'm sure whenever we record our episodes, we'll have a quick chat about the last few episodes of The Bad Batch and how we felt about them. So yeah, you can tune in for your for our regular thoughts on The Bad Batch if you are following it as well. And if not, I'll try and provide a timestamp in the notes so that you can skip ahead to the like attack the clones bit if you're just interested in that because that's okay too yeah i guess we don't want to spoil anything for people yeah that's true i know some people like just prefer to like hold off and watch the whole thing when it's done although with 16 Mm. episodes that would be quite the marathon (laughs) yeah it's going to go into the summer and i think they'll be starting the loki series before it ends as well right so yes no, definitely. So there's lots of stuff to like keep track of at the moment, assuming people are interested in Loki. But I am. So yeah, I'll have a lot to watch. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So with that said, let's move into our discussion of the fandom that surrounded Attack of the Clones. 
So yep, this is obviously a continuation of what we started last time, where we did quite a lengthy and detailed retrospective on the fandom of the Phantom Menace. Obviously, as we said various times in that discussion, we could only scratch the surface because there's obviously so much to talk about in relation to fandom at that time. And we weren't there, so it's not like we have like a first-person perspective on the whole thing. So it's more just like looking back at it through the mists of time and comparing it to our own experiences and just being like wow that happened so yeah just expect a selective but hopefully interesting discussion essentially yeah and again the messages from our listeners help out a huge amount because we're just kind of feeling around in the dark (laughs) yeah no 100 percent. honestly i don't know what i'll do without those emails so (laughs) thank you so much to everyone who submitted one And obviously next time the plan will be to talk about Revenge of the Sith era in fandom. So if you you have any thoughts you want to share on that, please email us at scavengershorde at gmail.com. Okay, so on the note of emails, um, the first one I'd like to bring up is from Jen Marie. And she is the site runner of a site called Anakin and His Angel, which amazingly she started back in 2000 when she was 15 years old. So it was like a really early passion project for her, which is pretty amazing. Um, She actually now has a podcast of her own called Kyber Sisters that I recommend people check out. Um, But yeah, for the purposes of this discussion, um, I essentially asked Gemmery a few questions about fandom at that time. And yeah, Gemmery very generously sent through her thoughts on a few things and that's been really helpful. So thank you, Gemmery. Could you read out the first reply that Gemma Marie sent Kirsty is just an explanation of how fandom changed or didn't change <laughs> between the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. Mm-hmm. I don't remember it changing in a bad way. Fans were excited and there was a huge Anidala fan base that formed. Forums and live journals were some of the bigger online platforms where fans got together to share their love and excitement in anticipation for Attack of the Clones. I was part of the Jedi Council forums for a time, but I wanted a bit of a smaller place to connect with my readers, so I made my own forums, and that was a lot of fun. There were also a lot of fan listings, which helped fans to connect with each other. If you were in a fan listing and you had any kind of online platform, you could add a small graphic banner to your sidebar that let others know what or who you were a fan of. Oh, I remember that. I think those are also known as web rings, and that's the terminology I'm familiar with. And yeah, those banners and icons were iconic. I actually found some Star Wars ones from around this time, and they're just beautiful. Especially the stuff for like Sabe slash Obi-Wan shipping sites, because there was obviously very few reference images to use for Kira Knightley, so they often had like Pirates of the Caribbean era like reference images, and that's delightful to me. <laughs> I'm getting the impression that you might ship Sabe and Obi-Wan, Rachel. <laughs> you keep bringing them up. I do, don't I? <laughs> I think I just fell in love with those sites, you know, and that whole like handmade analogy thing that arose after the Phantom Menace. I just find it so yeah. endearing. And yeah, I think it ties back to like my frustration with the sequel trilogy and it failing to deliver in the same way with the Knights of Ren, because they could have been the handmaidens <laughs> of the sequel trilogy era, but no, they just didn't want to go there and that's a shame. I know. Like we said, we had the bad batch now, so it's all good. <laughs> exactly we need to see um that style of fandom take off the bad batch please that'd be amazing but yeah i think that's a really good point about you know there was this more centralized type of fandom on jedi council forums but a lot of fandom 
like actually took place on much smaller websites where people could channel their more like niche interest in the series and I honestly think that's a good idea and sometimes when I look at Twitter and what a mess Twitter can be I think there's a case to be made for moving back to the old way of doing things. Oh definitely I even miss Tumblr at this point. (laughs) Yeah no it feels positively cozy doesn't it? (laughs) It's too open it's too public it's too close to the creators. (laughs) Yeah no and it's very difficult because Obviously on Twitter, you just basically get this massive monster mash where it's like every single segment of Star Wars fandom all sharing like a single space. And obviously realistically, people curate their experience. So they follow people with a similar type of interest in Star Wars that they have. And they'll likely block people that they find antagonistic or that like might present some sort of like threat of some kind. But yeah, it's still not enough. (laughs) You know, and you can't have that truly like tailored fan experience that it seems like was a more natural way of doing things back in the early two thousands. Um, okay, so now we've like briefly touched upon what fandom landscape looked like back then. Let's just quickly talk about what some of the discussion points were among fans. So I found lots of speculation threads on like a old Google news group from just after the release of episode one and I found one post in particular from June 1999 that had a bunch of predictions for what would happen in episode two. I was just wondering could you read that list out please Kirsty? Anakin will be looking for his mother but will not be able to get her because Watto would have lost her to the Huts, Jabba and Godola, thus beginning episode two much like Return of the Jedi. Anakin will free Shmi only by force and killing Godola the Hut. There has to be a reason why Anakin did not free his mother in 10 years, and that very well could be it. How many years was it between Empire and Jedi? Darth Sidious and Palpatine will not be the same person, but will be working together to bring about the end of the Jedi. Captain Panaka will be a spy for Sidious. How did Maul know they were on Tatooine, or their exact location in the swamp? Panaka was against every plan that they came up with, and this would be like Lando and Empire. Darth Maul will be one of the first clones, How would Obi and all the good guys know about the clones? Someone will have to be cloned for them to find out. And who better than the badass himself? Obi will tell everyone that he killed him, but yet he lives. Anakin will ask Amidala to marry him, but before they can get married, the war breaks out and Anakin is called to duty with Obi-Wan. They go off and fight this war, and shortly after, Anakin's return to Naboo, the wedding takes place as the ending to episode two. One of the Jedi will end up being a dark Jedi. My guess is Mace Windu. He will have to do more than sit in a chair in episode two, and I think this would, this would give him character. Although it will not happen until episode three, I think he will be a key part in one big-ass boom that happens at the Jedi Temple. Some key parts to Anakin's fall will be the closeness of Obi-Wan to Amidala, episode two and three, and the death of Shmi in episode three. I find that a really interesting set of predictions slash speculations. Because obviously some of them are accurate, like yes, Anakin and Padme do get married at the end of episode two, but it's also really funny to me that in this like overview of what might happen, like it's so mechanical, the whole like Anakin and Padme thing, it's like Anakin asks Amidala to marry him and it's like, okay, so that just happens out of nowhere, like he last saw her when he was like nine years old (laughs) and now it's like, Hello, Padme, I'm seeing you again after nine years. Will you marry me? And I'm sure they realised that more than that would have to happen. You know, but that 
sort of way of presenting it as a theory it just shows how not on people's minds it was that there might be like a really prominent romance in this film you know it was more like a perfunctory well they have to get together because they're going to be the parents of luke and leia Mm. and yeah that's why it was presented in that sort of way um what's your favorite aspect of all these predictions kirsty um i guess the idea of darth maul being a clone because <laughs> it is the bad guy it's boba but <laughs> they're not. yeah i find it a bit ambiguous i kind of i'm not sure if they mean the darth boba, maul Django, in episode sorry. one was a clone or whether they mean that now he's dead Darth Maul will be cloned and there will be new Darth Mauls. Do you see what I, I think mean? when they say Obi will tell everyone that he killed him, but yeah, he lives. Like maybe he comes back in episode two and they're cloning him. Right. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. to be honest. It shows how far back though this like obsession of cloning goes. So I think it actually goes back to the Timothy Zahn novels, um, the like original sequel trilogy, if you will, um, because there's like a Luke clone in those. And I think since then, it's just had this like vice grip on the fandom's imagination because at every stage, it's like, but what if there's a clone? And I mean, yeah, I don't blame people at this point. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge part of Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can't blame the fans at all, but it will always be funny to me because I don't know. I just find clones kind of like really goofy, especially in the Star Wars for some reason. And that's my problem, okay, because I know clones are really important in stars and that it's very firmly established in episode two that there's a massive clone army and that they're very important to the whole animated series. It's a very important part of the mythology of the show. But yeah, I, I still find it funny and that's okay. I, I get it because it is kind of goofy without any kind of exploration of the themes that that would throw up you know yeah that's why the clone wars is great because it does explore that stuff about like personhood and identity and free will and stuff yeah which i really um, respect and appreciate because yeah to look at it from the outside you know you wouldn't necessarily expect that from like a kid's show and i'm doing that with like bunny ears around kid's show um so yeah it demonstrates a really nice level of maturity to the storytelling which is really cool yeah, the idea of Sidious and Palpatine not being the same person as well. I can totally understand why people might have been theorising that. Maybe if they didn't realise that Ian had played the characters. Yeah. In both. Oh, if maybe like they thought that Dooku was going to end up being Sidious or something. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm sure <laughs> someone said that. I personally didn't find that post, but it was almost certainly out there. Um, and yeah, I think it was probably just like a well it's too obvious if they're the same person <laughs> they have to be different and i think yeah you see a lot of that and also yeah this whole thing about one of the jedi being a dark jedi i feel like that was another really common line of spec and especially with the whole idea of it being mace windu and i think so much of that goes back to the casting of samuel l jackson because I think people just couldn't accept that Samuel L. Jackson, who's a really cool dude and obviously a really high profile actor, was just playing such like a relatively tiny part. And obviously he becomes more important in Revenge of the Sith. But it's still a really small role <laughs> in terms of like screen time and stuff. And yeah, I think people just wanted him to be something more than what he was. I mean, they're right in that he's playing a key part at the Jedi Temple. <laughs> yeah. And he's the bad guy from Anakin's point of view. <laughs> yeah, and that's true. So all about your perspective, isn't it? <laughs> he wants to kill Sidious. I mean, at that point, he, he knows who he is. Um, I guess you could look at Dooku as the Dark Jedi. Yeah. 
Cause it's so funny when like Windows like saying to Padme, oh, it, it couldn't be him. He used to be a Jedi. It's not in his nature. It's like there are so many times throughout episode two and three where the plan is literally laid out by someone and people are like, no, of course not. <laughs> Dooku literally tells Obi-Wan everything that's happening. He's like, I don't believe you. Yeah. I find it most hilarious when those scenes involve Yoda because obviously Yoda has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and he's meant to be like the smartest, wisest Jedi in existence. And he like literally has the truth spelled out. He's like, hmm, think on this more, I must. <laughs> so I know you've got it. You've got it. You know what's happening now. Go and do something. But yeah, if they fought like that, then the whole saga wouldn't happen basically. So I don't know, mixed emotions. Um, <laughs> I, okay, um, you said everything you want to say there, Kirsty. Pretty much. I'm just always impressed by how things are so close. And yet, obviously, it's inevitable that things wouldn't be 100%. But there's some pretty good educated guesses. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's why I picked this one, you know, because there are some like really wild ones that bear no relationship at all to what happened. <laughs> and it's kind of harder to talk about those, you know. So you're, basically, it's like, wow, that sure is wacky. And then you just have to move on. So something like this is a bit more grounded. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Could you read out the email from Seth, please, Kirsty? Yes. Hello, Rachel and Kirsty, hosts of my favourite Star Wars podcast. Oh, thank you, Seth. Aww. Seth actually launched his own podcast very recently. So I want to give it a bit of a plug. It's called Best Since Empire. Ooh. And I'm really enjoying it so far. So please go and listen to it, everyone. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. I haven't had time to yet, but I'll definitely add that to my list. Thank you. The prequels were a bit of a test for my fandom. Episode one probably hit me at the wrong age and the wrong frame of mind, but there were some highlights. Seeing the trailer for the first time in San Francisco and using the urinal adjacent to Rick McCallum's just beforehand. Wow, what a claim to fame. Having recognised him from promotional materials, Clones was a slightly different story. I got to see it for the first time with my father, having been unable to make that happen for The Phantom Menace, as we'd hoped to. Episode 2 seemed an obvious improvement to me, and the beating its reputation took in the public discourse over the years was interesting to watch, as I believe reviews at the time also framed it as a step in the right direction. But what I'm really writing about is a colourful character who emerged on the internet scene by the name of Super Shadow a kind of proto-Mike Zero who concocted all manner of wild scoops about each upcoming prequel, confidently stated, yet with no basis in reality. He claimed to be a close friend of Lucas himself, and would periodically post Q&As with the director in which he was clearly crafting the dialogue for both parties. It was maddening at the time, but compared to today's monetized YouTube grifted landscape, it now seems positively quaint, and Super Shadow didn't always land far from the mark. In a March 4th, 2000 post of what he claims to be excerpts from the episode 2 rough draft, he shares this supposed piece of the crawl. As Jedi Knight, Anakin Skywalker has returned to Tatooine to rescue his mother from the vile tyranny of slavery. Little does Anakin know that his mother's fortunes have severely changed over the last 10 years. And later on, that Anakin arrives at Watto's junk shop only to learn that his mother is no longer his slave. Not bad, Super Shadow. Not bad. All the best, Seth Blurgowitz. Oh, it's so interesting, the whole Super Shadow thing. Like, I've only scratched the surface in, like, looking into that particular character. Um, but it really is fascinating. You can, like, his website isn't online anymore. But you can, like, access certain parts of it through the Wayback Machine. And, yeah, it's just a labyrinth, Kirsty. <laughs> I don't think you've seen it, but 
yeah it's just so layered you know and there's so many different facets to it it's kind of fascinating you know it was clearly a lot of work to set it all up and the guy clearly had imagination but yeah it's all complete bullshit (laughs) but that is pretty pretty correct i mean what you're saying there about episode two that's what happens yeah no it's true like there are some good like educated guesses but i think if you compare that sort of thing to what we just read out from that poster on the news group that like i got you to read before like it's kind of like if you're to compare how accurate they are the guy on the news group is more accurate than super shadow (laughs) if that makes sense Mm. so yeah while super shadow did get some stuff right that's not particularly extraordinary because a lot of fans were speculating along similar lines and again so much of these films there was information out there very early you know to the point that like literal storyboards like made it into fans hands somehow which is amazing right considering how much more primitive the internet was back then but it still happened um so yeah like super shadow wasn't completely inventing storylines out of a vacuum but he was inventing a lot and it's really interesting Although one thing I did find, there was there's a really interesting video by Hello Greedo about Super Shadow that I recommend people check out. It offers a good bite-sized overview of the situation. And apparently Super Shadow had some sort of like VIP section of the website where you had to pay him to access. Oh, there we go. Yeah, exactly. To like access like high level spoilers and to like send questions directly to George Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! Because I, I was just thinking, oh, it's kind of sweet that this was done before you could monetize that kind of thing. But of course, yeah, of course he was. No, exactly. I'm sure it wasn't as efficiently monetized as things can be monetized today. You know, I have no idea what sort of like e-commerce system <laughs> would have been used in like 2000. You know, to do that sort of thing. But yeah, he was trying to make money off it, so he was a bit of a grifter. Um, unfortunately, so it's not completely wholesome. Um, but yeah, it does nonetheless still feel very quaint by modern standards. Um, yeah, so I actually went onto Super Shadow's website and I looked at what he was saying about Attack of the Clones before it was Attack of the Clones. Um, and in May 2000, he basically posted a treatment of the film <laughs> that, as we've already mentioned, was completely made up. But I thought it might be fun to just read out a few select excerpts. It's very long and we just don't have time to go into the tedious details of battles that never happened. Um, and yeah, I thought we could just talk about it bit by bit. Um, could you just read out that first section, Kirsty, that I've highlighted? Okay. Star Wars Episode Two: Crusaders of the Force. The film opens with Anakin Skywalker, R2-D2 and Jar Jar Binks arriving on Tatooine to rescue Shmi Skywalker and C-3PO from bondage. Anakin lands his Republic cruiser at one of the Mos Eisper spaceports and heads to Watto's junk shop. Watto tells Anakin that his mother and C-3PO are now the property of the infamous Meetor the Hut. Next, Anakin goes to Meetor's headquarters to get his mother and C-3PO. While at Meetor's abode, Meetor refuses to release Shmi and C-3PO because Meetor has grown fond of them. A fight erupts. Anakin wins and takes his mother and C-3PO. Anakin and company leave Tatooine and head for Naboo. So it pretty much is return of the jedi (laughs) yeah no that definitely seems to be what they're going for it's also interesting to me how um straightforward they think the whole thing with shimmy would be you know because like i really don't like the circumstances in which Shmi died in attack of the clones 
but I kind of understand why that decision was made from a narrative perspective. You know, obviously, it, like drives Anakin further towards the dark side, and there's also a question of like what happens to Shmi after she's rescued. You know, like what mm. role does she play in Anakin's life? And I can understand that being a very tricky like thing to handle like in terms of the parameters of the plot George was going for I wish they'd had imagination to make Shmi an ongoing part of the story but hey ho it is what it is um but yeah it's just interesting it's like it seems like all these early theories do address Shmi in some way but I haven't yet seen one where she dies um although again I'm sure someone was saying that before the film came out yeah it's hard because it's like you think of all the possibilities like oh Shmi could have stayed alive and then maybe she could have raised Leia but everything is kind of sort of set in stone from the original trilogy like she has to become an Organa so mm. exactly yeah and she's definitely not there when Luke is being raised on Tatooine so yeah okay cool could you then read out the next part which is about an encounter between Anakin and Sidious Anakin turns to Sidious and they exchange dialogue concerning cloning and the many weaknesses Sidious believes Anakin to have. Sidious concludes and says, Join the dark side and you will become the most powerful force user in the galaxy. I have foreseen your destiny as my apprentice. From an adjoining room emerges Darth Rage. Anakin seethes with both hate, aggression and fear. Anakin lunges into a passionate lightsaber duel with Darth Rage. Anakin's hate eventually wins over. The young Jedi severs Rage's bionic arms and decapitates him. Anakin turns to Sidious as Obi-Wan awakens. Before the two Jedi can attack the darkly clad Sith Master, Sidious states that if the enemies of the Mandalorian try to destroy the ship they are on, it will create an explosion big enough to destroy all of the surrounding ships. Obi-Wan and Anakin retreat, knowing they must live to fight another day. As they leave Sidious's cruiser, they witness a starfighter hurtling towards the large ship on a kamikaze mission. So many parallels. There's that parallel mm. for the Holdo maneuver in the last Jedi. Yeah, I was going to say they predicted that. Yeah, maybe Ryan Johnson <laughs> was reading Super Shadow back in the day. <laughs> maybe that was a nod to Super Shadow. <laughs> <laughs> With additional material written by Super Shadow. I would love that so much. Um, and yeah, there's also other stuff like. Um, the whole idea of Anakin severing ra- rages, which is an amazing name, I love that. Bionic arms and decapitating him. That's basically what happens at the start of episode three, you know, with Anakin giving mm-hmm. into his dark side and beheading Dooku, you know. So again, that's a bit of an eerie coincidence. I'm starting mm. to suspect, you know, was George Lucas actually reading Super Shadow? <laughs> so yeah. Or was he Super Shadow? <laughs> Maybe he was. I'm friends with George Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be like one of the biggest like orchestrations of like online performance art ever done, especially by someone so powerful and influential. I'd really love that to be true. It's pretty Sidious slash Palpatine of him. The Phantom spoiler leaker. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, and yeah, the funniest thing about this to me might be the fact that Darth Rage isn't all that implausible as like a Darth name in Star Wars, you know, like Sidious, Maul, Vader. They're all basically names like riffing off words that mean bad things. So We have Savage Oppress. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I guess it's all about the pronunciation then, isn't it? Like what spin would you put on Rage to make it a bit more Star Warsy, Kirsty? Rage. <laughs> Rage! <laughs> Darth Rage. Just so, so that it's like the pad- 
Padme and her handmaidens. You put a little accent there. Rajay. Sabe. Sabe turns to the dark side after discovering her latent force abilities and becomes Darth Rajay. <laughs> Serve Insidious. Wow, that'd be amazing. Um, but yeah, again, you can see what um, Super Shadow is based in this on, bless him. You know, it's clearly just like a redo of like the Return of the Jedi throne room scene. You know, and like Sidious trying to be like, oh, join me, Luke. You know, you know what I mean. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that scene's basically been repeated several times across Star Wars. <laughs> so, yeah, I can't, I can't lie though, I do like those repeats. Okay, and then finally, we've got Super Shadow's take on the ending of episode two. Could you read that out, please, Kirsty? Chancellor Palpatine's quarters. He's being addressed by another unseen by the camera. The other voice states, The boy is getting too dangerous. He must be turned before it is too late. It must be our first priority. While much darker dealings take place, Anakin and Amidala are wed in a grand royal wedding. It is a thoroughly joyous occasion, and the light of the galaxy seems to shine upon them as we fade to black. Oh, interesting. So he had their marriage being like open as opposed to the secret that it was. Yeah, that was the main thing that stood out to me. You know, there doesn't seem to be any inkling of all this like forbidden romance stuff. Um, And actually, our next email, I'll read that out quickly now because that ties into that quite nicely. So Auronix, who provided so many helpful insights for our Phantom Menace episode, um, said this about Attack of the Clones. Well, speculation about the clone army and real excitement about the Fets because Boba Fett was the man as far as expanded universe material went. So we get to see his dad? Awesome. However, there was also some, hey, wait a minute, on the Anakin Padme plot. Because in expanded universe stuff, like the tales of the Jedi from the New Jedi Order books, no one had an issue with married Jedi or Jedi with families. So where was this whole forbidden angle coming from? And a lot of speculation trying to chart how or why the policies changed from Tales of the Jedi, where this was not an issue, to the prequel era, where it clearly was. So yeah, Hmm. I found that really interesting in terms of illuminating why it wouldn't have crossed people's minds that the romance would be forbidden. Yeah, especially now that we have the High Republic in the new Disney canon as well, that stretches back hundreds of years and yet still has that same we're not supposed to fall in love and have attachments element to it they've obviously decided to keep running with that yeah that is clearly a very like ancient teaching of like how to be a good jedi essentially um and yeah it's very interesting it does make you think about an alternate version of the jedi order where you know like romantic relationships are freely permitted and i don't know i feel like the whole story would have been so radically different if that had been the case not necessarily Mm. in a bad way but yeah just very different yeah yeah they'd have had to have the conflict come from somewhere entirely different maybe they would have run with the obi-wan and padme getting close thing yeah yeah, that's true (laughs) although then how would we feel about (laughs) obi-wan yeah and i feel like that's why they didn't go down that path so i feel like obi-wan is one of the very few jedi who does like come out of it all looking pretty good by the end of it you know he's obviously not perfect (laughs) he's still messed up a few times but yeah, he he's like a pretty like model Jedi in many ways. Although again, I'm coming at this from a non-Clone Wars perspective, so I'm sure he gets up to all sorts of mischief and that that would alter my perspective. Well, he does, but you know, even in the original trilogy, he's lying to Luke. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, he's really bad for that. 
<laughs> yeah, never and mind. Don't even take admit it. All it. Back. It's just like, well, from a certain point of view. <laughs> oh my god, I hate him for that. That was so so bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, unfortunately, it wasn't all just wholesome speculation and like throwing out fun ideas and listening to Super Shadow and thinking he had a direct line to George Lucas at the time. There was also a darker side to fandom. Um, so we've got more insight from Cree, who again we heard from last time. Could you read out the little excerpt from Cree, Cree's email that I have here, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. By the time Attack of the Clones was released, I had been promoted to moderator, manager, and finally administrator of the Jedi Council forums. Due to having to ban some trolls who were posting spoilers, I already knew about Shmi and Jango Fett's fate when I watched the movie. I still had a great time at the movie, but I felt like the euphoria was once again clouded by negativity when I got online. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry, Cree. Yeah, no, it sucks, doesn't it? You know, like, you're so excited to go and discuss something that you've really enjoyed and, like, had a great time with, and then if you go online you just see people, like, hating on it and bashing it, it definitely does dampen the experience, so... Yeah, it's a shame. That seems like quite a common story from accounts I came across. I do feel like even now Attack of the Clones is the prequel that's judged most harshly and I have to think that it's partly because the romance is so central. Mm. And it is like, ew, romance. Yeah. <laughs> Cooties. I, I agree. I think that's a big part of it. Like, and I think sometimes, to be honest, people won't even be completely conscious of the fact that's why they feel like such like revulsion's too strong but you know like aversion I guess is what I mean you know why they feel such an aversion to it you know but yeah like I think it is a whole thing of oh that's not Star Wars you know that doesn't belong in Star Wars you know it's just this rejection of that more like openly emotional and soppy side to it um and yeah that's a shame because to me that's the most interesting part of Attack of the Clones (laughs) Because, like, I, I'm not going to, like, lie here. Like, for me, Attack of the Clones might be the weakest movie. But as with all nine saga movies, and yes, even Tross, <laughs> include Tross, like, I still enjoy it. You know, I can still, like, appreciate it and, like, have a good time with it. Uh, it's a shame. I wish people, like, would be able to, like, be a bit more lighthearted in how they approach it and, yeah, not have that, like, knee-jerk reaction to it. Yeah, I do just wonder sometimes when I step back and like think about the context that the original trilogy gives us with Vader being Luke's father and you know the fact that Vader doesn't mention Padme at all there, you know his 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 mother wasn't a factor mm. for him. Um it's like do people then were they thinking like oh he must have had a wife or he must have been in love or was it just he got someone pregnant at one point? Like what was the thought process there? Yeah, like I've seen various like takes on that essentially. I did see some very early speculation that was very dark and basically suggested like Vader's like Luke and Leia might have arisen through non-consensual means. So mm. yeah, like I, I very deliberately chose not to include that so it was quite triggering, you know, it, like it wasn't like pleasant to read. I guess the parallel there is now like the stuff around Palpatine being Ray's granddad because mm. I know off screen we know the whole cloning thing but that isn't actually an aspect of the Rise of Skywalker so a lot of people probably walked away from the Rise of Skywalker thinking that Palpatine had sex with someone yeah exactly and yeah like I think that's another reason actually why the whole cloning thing like doesn't always sit right with me 
So I feel like it's a neat way to like eliminate the messiness of human relationships sometimes. I've seen other people talking about that recently. Mm. This like, yeah, it kind of negates the need for intimate romance, sex, anything of that nature. Exactly. Like you can just be like, well, these people just came out of nowhere. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that I really like want to see Palpatine in those sorts of situations. And I definitely don't really want a story where like Palpatine was like non-consensually involved with someone that would just be too disgusting. No, but he could have had a dark side lover. Yeah, no, exactly. You know? Like it, it's also a convenient way of getting rid of the need for Ray to have a grandma. Yeah. You know, it's again like, oh, we don't need to have those female characters. Yeah. No, which is just so frustrating and it's just such a track record at this point that I just find it tiring, you know? I think it is a much more interesting story if you do have, like, a mistress or something, you know, like a dark side mistress. Like, yeah. And that's a whole of discussion I could do my fanfic about Mrs. Palpatine separately. <laughs> they could always walk it back of just, you know, yeah, it's not in the movie itself, so they could end up with actually him being Papa Palpatine and Ray's dad being his son rather than a failed clone. Yeah. Because otherwise you can't get away from the fact that Ray is then half Palpatine clone, <laughs> which is just weird. <laughs> Are we going to get some Omega Ray parallels? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, don't worry. It's okay. Like, it's natural for the mind to go there. Mm. Okay, cool. So we've got another listener email, this time from Ashley. Um, could you read out Ashley's email, please, Kirsty? Yep. I love your podcast and I'm loving this prequels retrospective series. I was obsessed with the Anakin Padme ship and Attack of the Clones. It was everything my angsty teenage self wanted. Haha. <laughs> I adored Padme's gorgeous meadow dress and all her amazing costumes. I wasn't part of online fandom at the time, so I didn't know anything about people hating on the prequels. It wasn't until I got older that I learned about the backlash and I started to feel ashamed of liking the prequels. Attack of the Clones became my least favourite Star Wars movie. However, earlier this year, I took a week off work to do a Star Wars marathon and watch all the movies in chronological order. I decided to give Attack of the Clones a second chance, and you know what? I had a blast watching it. It was silly at times, but also pulpy and fun, and it reminded me how you shouldn't let online chatter ruin your enjoyment of a thing. Hear, hear. So true. Yeah. Yeah. No, I fully endorse that. I think that's such a great point. It's like, I think there is like a certain element of peer pressure, you know, and you see lots of other people expressing a certain view of a thing or a standpoint on a thing. Like you kind of feel like, oh, does that make me like weird for liking that? Or does it mean I have bad taste because I like that thing? And yeah, it can like completely taint your appreciation of something that you previously like just had a great time with. And yeah, I think that's one of the real downsides of the internet in a way. You know, you're too aware of what everyone else is thinking, what it appears that everyone else is thinking. And yeah, I think that's great that you've been able to reclaim your appreciation for the film. Like now you've had a bit more time to think about it. Yeah, you don't. It's easier said than done, I know, because I'm the same way. But you don't have to worry so much about if other people see things differently. Right. And sometimes you have to catch yourself before feeling the need to like persuade other people to like the thing that you you do and they don't it's like no one's wrong it's just a matter of preference so just like what you like and yeah it is that coming back to that element of curating on social media these days where if someone's going on about a film that you don't like or going on about one that you do and in, in a nasty way you just mute them <laughs> they're not there anymore Exactly. Yeah, that's a definitely very useful tool that places like Twitter have built in. 
Oh my goodness. Um, so yeah, I was looking a bit more into what the Anakin and Padme fandom looked like around the time of the release of Attack of the Clones. And unfortunately, it's really hard to find like the like the whole story, you know, because so many of the sites where these like fandom discussions would have been taking place, they're just not online or my primitive internet search skills could not find them, <laughs> basically. So I'm not saying it's completely impossible to find them. It was just beyond my skills, essentially. Um, although I did find some stuff that we'll be going into. Um, and yeah, so one of the more interesting things I found was on Jelly Council Forum from September 2002. And it's basically a thread that was established as a safe haven for Anakin and Padme shippers at the time. Um, and yeah, it's just very interesting to me because there are obvious parallels with our experience of the Rayla fandom on that same forum. <laughs> so yeah, I'll read out the OP and then you can read out the response, Kirsty, okay? So this is the original post in the thread. By joining in this thread, I solemnly swear that wherever I go on the Force.net boards, I will do my best to defend the love story of Anakin and Padme in Attack of the Clones. And when the time comes, episode 3 as well, if it need be, I will attack arguments against them with an intelligent argument for, and will attack only the argument, not the arguer, as this is to defend the love story, not start a flame war. If you are a fan of the Anakin and Padme love story, and all its sad, tragic glory, come on in and join. I want this place to be a flame-free thread for fans of Anakin and Padme to feel comfortable. Oh, that's great, isn't it? I love it, yep. <laughs> I solemnly swear. <laughs> it's beautiful. Could you read out the first response, Kirsty? You are trying to bring back the integrity of, of the original love story thread that has long digressed into a haven for Anakin haters. Then I swear to keep my keyboard on a leash in the face of Anakin haters to the best of my ability. So it was cool at that point to hate on Anakin, basically. That's very much the impression I get. Yeah, and I was desperately trying to find these threads, you know, where clearly all this Anakin hate was happening because this thread was created in response to that, you know, so it's clearly there somewhere. Like, although maybe it was deleted, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I just couldn't, and that was sad. Do you think it was like classic Padme's too good for him thing? <laughs> I get that vibe. Yeah, that's the impression I got. Um, and yeah, this is obviously going to be speculative, you know, because I couldn't find the threads that people were referring to. But yeah, I would presume it was would be variations on, oh, Anakin is just too evil. What he's already done at this point is unforgivable. Padme is stupid for supporting Anakin on Tatooine and like forgiving him for murdering the Sand People. This all sounds so familiar. I know, right? I just had <laughs> such like a strong wave of deja vu. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, isn't that amazing? You know, it's 20 years ago, you know, basically these comments. Yeah, they feel exactly the same as the kinds of dynamics that repeated when Raylo came around, you know, so it was... Well, it identical. is reverse Annie Dala. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so like Kylo just basically supplanted Anakin as the dangerous love interest you simply have to hate and warn people against. So yeah, Kylo's part of a lineage essentially. <laughs> well obviously he's literally part of a lineage but you know what I mean in terms of the lineage of character type the moral panic just in case people go out and find their own real Anakin Skywalker to marry <laughs> yep. don't marry a Sith Lord girls it's not good for your health <laughs> oh. 
Oh my goodness. Um, but yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, I did actually, we got a really great email from Seri who did shed more light on their experience of being like a, a big Anakin fan and liking the Anakin and Padme story. And it's very long, but very interesting. So could you read out that email, please, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. For the prequels, I started off reading articles in newspapers and magazines for The Phantom Menace. I was initially pulled in by Darth Maul on the front cover of the Sunday Times magazine, which seemed to me a great character, but by the time Attack of the Clones came round, I was more invested in Anakin's story. I can't remember the exact time I started looking online for content, but definitely by Revenge of the Sith. I went to see all three in the cinemas. At some point, I started posting on the Jedi Council forums. I can't remember when exactly, but I tended to gravitate towards discussions about Anakin, especially those that discussed his treatment by the Jedi. The positives. I made some great friends online through the forums. I became part of a loose collective of mostly women, some men, who felt that Anakin had been treated badly by the Jedi. I ended up meeting some of them in person at a big Star Wars gathering in Germany. We had a great time and I really missed that side of being a fan. The people I knew were mostly from Europe, a couple from the US and Australia. Sadly, I've lost touch with them now, but I'd love to catch up with them again if I ever, if I can ever find them online. I love talking about Star Wars, and the forums gave me an outlet for it, which I don't really have in real life. I talk about it with my dad and sister sometimes, but not as much as I'd like. It gave me a chance to process my ideas, although in the end it was a negative experience. See below. I also found out new music and films from talking to new people, which widened my horizons. I started writing fanfic about Anakin and Padme, which then branched out into other themes. I don't remember any issues writing fanfic. I preferred writing about Anakin, the Sith and the dark side of the Force, including the idea that the Sith could be redeemed. I don't remember any negative comments etc about such topics. This was all on the Jedi Council forums. I had to give up because of the demands of my job in the end. I've recently started writing again though. I just had to rewrite The Rise of Skywalker. Here are the negatives. I don't remember anything but negative comments and interactions with the wider Star Wars fandom for our interpretation of Anakin's story, which was that the Jedi were at fault as much as he was for choosing the dark side. The worst I remember is that my German friend would regularly be called Nazi for her views. Sounds familiar? I mean, the passage of time has probably exaggerated some things, but it was very similar to how I see Ben Solo and Kylo Ren fans get treated today. The consensus amongst fans on the online boards was that the Jedi had done nothing wrong and it was all Anakin's fault. It got so bad that some of the group I was involved with set up their own private message boards so we could debate in peace. I can't remember the name of it now or what server it was on, but it was a relief to be able to talk Star Wars without being attacked by other fans. So seeing the hatred online for Kylo fans brought it all back, whilst Anakin, bizarrely, is now okay for antis. It's puzzling as in my mind Ben is no different from Anakin in that he's a person worn down by expectations with a legacy hanging over his head and he makes some bad choices, which he obviously regrets. They're the same character. They even die in the same way, thanks to rubbish storytelling. <laughs> it's not a surprise that the discourse around them is the same, but it's disappointing to see the same reaction. The gatekeeping, the Han, Luke and Leia did nothing wrong logic, the obsession with Luke being right to the point where no criticism is allowed, Raylo being toxic and abusive. I don't remember much about Padme and Anakin being abusive in the same way though. While Star Wars itself has got a bit better, bearing in mind they messed Finn's character around and reduced Rose and had a very poor LGBTQ representation and killed off Ben, it's sad to see that fandom arguments against broken, tortured, dark side characters don't seem to have progressed in the past 20 years or so. Wow, that's a great email. Thank you so much for writing that. That's so illuminating in terms of 
what the state of affairs was back then. Um, and yeah, like as we've already mentioned, those parallels are so, so blatant in terms of those arguments about Anakin relative to the arguments about Kylo Ren. Um, mm. And yeah, I think what I might find most fascinating is this insistence from a certain contingent of the fan base that the Jedi are not at fault at all. And that fascinates me. Yeah, same. <laughs> and that is all down to the individual failings of these people, you know, specifically Anakin and Kylo, you know, oh, it's their fault for like being weak or like giving into the temptation. You know, there's like no interest in acknowledging the institutional failings of the Jedi as an organization, you know, and what they might have done wrong in the situation. And it's especially hilarious because the films themselves directly contradict that reading. So. Ugh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I would, wouldn't know for sure what George's intent was there, but I would have to guess that that stuff was by design. That, you know, Anakin goes to characters like Yoda with his problems and is kind of dismissed and not given very practical advice for the kind of person that he is. Um, yeah, he just doesn't have the support that he needs. And we that kind of thing is explored over and over again in even the Clone Wars, you know, with how Ahsoka's treated and that sort of thing. So I would say it's it's pretty on the nose for me in terms of the Jedi being at least partly complicit for their own downfall. Yeah, no, 100%. And obviously in The Last Jedi is even more explicit because you have Luke completely appreciating and understanding the many failings of the Jedi Order. You know, and obviously it's reductive to point to the, the Jedi have to end line, you know, because that's recontextualized as the film goes on. I guess what he's really trying to say is the Jedi need to be reformed, isn't it? You know, in like a radical way, because the way mm-hmm. they were in the past just isn't working. And yeah, that seems pretty clear to me and explicit. But again, it didn't do anything to alter how people perceive someone like Kylo Ren. You know, the same type arguments went on and on and no minds were changed so yeah I don't know I just I guess I find the inflexibility kind of fascinating but I also feel a bit of a hypocrite you know because in a way I'm inflexible just from the other direction you know because I'm inflexible and I've always found that character sympathetic and I've always found that humanity in him you know and I've never been persuaded by the arguments from the other side so yeah it's just really interesting to me yeah, I guess to us it's just a more interesting story if there are various factors at play, right? Rather than just it being the sole responsibility of this one person. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, in terms of these... But I want to end like on a slightly more like optimistic note about like what fans did in a practical way, you know, to make their experience of the fandom better and to celebrate what they liked in their own spaces. Um, yep, yeah, so one of the things I found was a Star Wars fan site dedicated to Anakin and Padme. Um, that I'm going to avoid saying the name of because I know I'll mess it up and I'm afraid. Um, and yeah, basically the creator of that fan site wrote like a mission statement explaining why they created it essentially and what appealed to them about that dynamic. Could you read that out please, Kirsty? Yeah, I'll say it's the Moons of Diego. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
sorry. My intrigue with the character of Vader and the mysterious wife, who is mentioned only once in the entire original trilogy, had become, with the advent of episode one, an increasing interest in me, sowing my shippy-loving roots. Of course, Annie being a nine-year-old then, the dominant prequel fanfic pairing was Obi-Dala, or an Annie-Ami-Obi love triangle, which I found I despised. Scouring the internet, I found very little, if anything, that was pro-AA. No websites, the fanfic I could count on one hand, and grew frustrated. I originally planned on an anti-love triangle site, but on a little bit of thinking, decided to do a pro-Anakin Amidala site instead, so I could be sure of at least one place on the internet I didn't run into any love triangle, Obidala crap, and could enjoy my favourite couple in relative peace. For a while, this cheese stood alone, but soon, fortunately, began to thrive. God, this person would have loved AO3. I really hope they're still yeah, in I fandom know. and they can just thrive on that because, yeah, it's so great for curating exactly what you want to see in your fan fiction. Yeah. None of us should be taking AO3 for granted. <laughs> yeah, it's honestly amazing. It's completely transformed the fandom landscape for the better, in my opinion. Um, and it, it does totally make sense that Obidala would be the big thing after The Phantom Menace. Yeah. A hundred percent it does. Yeah. I've obviously like I feel duty bound to point out the omission, like in terms of like this person they're not acknowledging the slash ships that came out of the Phantom Menace. So there's right. not reference to all the mall stuff, there's not reference to the Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan Master ship. and Apprentice. Master and Apprentice, yeah. exactly. Um and yeah, as we mentioned as an and as we touched upon last time, those were both really big things, you know, with huge followings. But I don't know, I get the impression that like het shipping, so Line Canadala was a very separate space for the most part than slash shipping. Um, and again, I'd welcome to be proven wrong, you know, like if there were like fan fanfic archives that like welcomed all the different types of fan fiction and had them all in one pay in one place, I'd love to know about that. So yeah, mm-hmm. as always please email me at scavengershorde at gmail dot com. <laughs> um but yeah, I think it's just so interesting that while this person ultimately took the light side of the force and decided to create something that, about what they loved, you know, specifically the Anadala ship, there was also this really intense feeling of, ah, I don't like this other ship. And yeah, again, these are like eternal feelings. Yeah, definitely. It's always kind of tempting to focus on the things you don't like, but it's, it's better to save what you love. Exactly. Yep. And finally, I'd like to end with Gemmarie's recollections. So I asked her if she remembered there being any hostility towards Anadala. And thankfully, she does seem to have had quite a good experience in relation to this. So yeah, could you read out her comments, Kirsty? I honestly don't recall being aware of haters specifically targeted towards Anadala back then. But that might be because of where I chose to involve myself. I know that they're out there now, of course, but back then I wasn't really given any grief for being a fan of their individual characters or their relationship. I feel like fans were able to like what they liked and be accepted for it much easier during that time. Again, that might just be because of where I chose to involve myself and how I ran my little space on the internet, but I didn't experience anything like that. Obidala was the biggest ship after Anidala. Yeah, I'm really glad Gemmarie had like a generally positive experience. Like, And obviously these things are so individual. You know, there wasn't a single experience of being like in fandom at that time. You know, it did so much depend on how people interacted with like the fandom at large, you know, and where they chose to like post and how they chose to participate in fandom. So yeah, it's super complicated, but yeah, I'm glad she had a nice experience. Yeah, just even the concept of 
being attacked for liking Anakin and Padme's relationship sounds so strange after like 20 years, I guess. Yes. Because it it's the story. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, exactly. And I must say, to be fair, like when I was looking at old forum posts and like news groups, for example, where they were discussing Anadala, it was very rare to see people saying things like, oh, I can't believe those characters got together, you know, <laughs> because I think it was widely understood that, of course, they're going to get together. You know, they are obviously going to become the parents. Of Anakin. They're going to become the parents of Luke and Leia, you know, so I don't think anyone like protested against that, really. But there were lots and lots and lots of posts protesting about the execution of that relationship, which I don't know. Like I, I have some sympathy towards it, you know, like I'm not going to list out the like sins against filmmaking that Attack of the Clones supposedly commits. You know, it's done to death and it's yeah, there's just no point. But yeah, that's a bit more of a reasonable stance than the sorts of rhetoric you were seeing around Raylo. And obviously Raylo was different, you know, that wasn't like predestined in the same way that Anadala was. But I think at a certain point it did become pretty clear that Raylo was going to be something more than what the people who hated it hoped it would be. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you know, I still see people kind of reassessing how they feel about Annie Dala mm. now and, and the execution, if you're talking about that, because... Um, who was it the other day was rewatching the prequels? I think it's the woman who is um you one who's writing that new Ronin novel. Oh yes, yep. Um I can't remember her name, but she was rewatching them with her wife and she was like, The only way I can kind of reconcile the way that Anakin and Padme's relationship goes is by kind of headcanning them as like two queer people trying to desperately convince themselves that they're straight <laughs> and into each other. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Whatever works for you. God. It's a valid reading. We all have our readings. Yeah. Oh, so. I love that so much. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So that's Emma Candon, by the way, for anyone who wants right. to um look them up. Yeah, I can definitely understand that reading because it is painfully awkward to watch. Um, and I'm at the point where I've seen it enough times I find it kind of endearing, but I totally empathise with needing to find a rationale for it, basically. Hmm. There's obviously a bunch of stuff we haven't covered here. Like, for example, Obidala was another ship at the time. I, I did look up, I did look into it a bit, you know, and try and find like fan sites dedicated to it or archives. And I obviously found a bunch of fan fiction, but I didn't really find any of those like personal accounts of this is why I'm an Obidala ship- shipper, you know, um, that would be more interesting. And there was a, sh- a ship following naturally for Anakin and Obi-Wan and I could find even less about that and oh really yeah no it was really hard to find information and again I might just be looking in the wrong places so please email me if you do have insights into that but I have the vague impression that it was very controversial at the time because people perceived it as you know like Obi-Wan's known Anakin since Anakin was a little boy and he's like in a teaching position he's in a teaching role for Anakin you know so it's inappropriate for them to have a romantic relationship you know all these sorts of arguments which like again I understand like in a real world situation of course those elements would make it inappropriate but you know fan fiction it is what it is you know people ship um but yeah, like I could honestly find very little about it beyond examples of fan fiction, and there's obviously limits to what we can get out from like here's a summary of another like Obikin fan fiction. 
So right. yeah, if anyone does have insights into like other ships that were active at that time and like what the dynamics were like and what the experience of shipping that was like, we would really love to hear from you. So yeah, please do send us an email. Obi Wan and Dex. <laughs> There's clearly a history there. You know, I've heard wilder things, much wilder things. Or, y- Zam is a shapeshifter. I think that has a lot of potential. <laughs> yes, that's so true. <laughs> Who would you ship Zam with, Kirsty? Uh, everyone, I guess. <laughs> Probably Django, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's true. Like, although Django kills Zam in the end, right? Well, it's. I guess it's a tragic love to love enemies. story in the typical. Star yeah, Wars he mode. has to because she's about to reveal that he hired her. And then you could like write an angst fic where like he's haunted by Zam's like ghost or something, and he's like full with pain and regret over killing her. Yeah, she could have been helping him raise Boba. I'm gonna go away and write this now. Yeah, I do. Do you've got to like find a way to like insert absent mothers into Star Wars when Star Wars doesn't <laughs> do it for you? So, yep, run free. Um, but yeah, no, that was really fun. Um, it's obviously. I feel like we've gone into much less detail this time um, and that's partly just for time and reasons you know because we want to save our voices um, and it's also just because I found less stuff you know for this particular era you know the Attack of the Clones fandom so I feel like it just wouldn't have compared to the hype of Phantom Menace right yeah and I think that's really it to be honest you know like it was just so unparalleled that anticipation for the Phantom Menace that it really did have its own very distinct subculture and obviously that following for the prequels remained you know and there were lots of people interested in and excited by attack of the clones but i do very much get the vibe the fandom was smaller and a bit more limited to like a group of like more hardcore people who had perhaps less like who perhaps like were more like on things like Jedi Council Forum well there were absolutely still these like independent fan sites a lot of them just no longer exist and yeah ironically I actually found fewer like Attack of the Clones era fan sites than Phantom Menace era (laughs) fan sites and that's strange because obviously the Phantom Menace ones are that much older you know but they just seem much more perseverant somehow Hmm. yeah I'm curious to see what is discoverable for Revenge of the Sith at this point. Yeah, no, definitely. I feel like, in a way, I'll be helped there because a lot of it was on LiveJournal at that point. Right. And LiveJournal, a lot of that is still around, which is really helpful. So, yeah, LiveJournal will become my friend. (laughs) And yeah, hopefully (laughs) I will find interesting and relevant communities that I can stalk to find information. So, yeah, we will see. Um, but yep, that was a lot of fun. Are there any closing remarks you'd like to make, Kirsty? I don't think so. I'm having a lot of fun with this series. Oh, awesome. Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, yeah, because it's, I think neither of us were involved in fandom back then. So it is just so interesting to like be the outsiders for once, you know, and be like, what was it like? You know, and especially hearing from our listeners, that's really awesome. So yeah, thank you so much for those emails again. It's also getting me curious about the prequel novelizations that we still need to get to. Yes. No, I'm looking at them right now. They're almost within <laughs> touching distance. So we will do that. And we also need to do the Ewok movies. I'm so excited. Yep. <laughs> oh my God. Ewok mania. That will be a fun episode. Um, but yeah, I think that's time to close it up. So I'm Rachel and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. 
I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!